Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you are in person or on the live stream, we want to offer a very warm welcome to all of you. And we are overjoyed that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. If you're visiting with us here in person for the very first time, we want to welcome you. We hope that uh, you grabbed our little gift bag that lets you get to know us a little bit, gives you some free goodies that you can enjoy. Maybe one of those tumblers you can fill up as you get ready. Rumor tells me there's a game or something on tonight. Two teams are playing, some sport out there. All I know for me is it's an excuse to have chicken wings, and I'm pretty excited about that. So no offense if you're a huge L.A. or Cincinnati fan, you know. I'll probably root for Cincinnati only because they're the underdog, but I don't have a dog in that fight, so to speak. But uh, it's an excuse for wings, and I like that. So a couple of announcements as we enter into worship this morning. I want to invite all of you to fill out the friendship pads, or if you're on the end of a row, get it started, pass it down the aisle, let us know that you're here. We would love to have that opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. We have the privilege this morning of coming to the Lord's table, and so hopefully our hearts are prepared as, and I love the Sundays where we have the Lord's Supper because we get fed with grace from the Word and fed with grace from the table. And I don't know about you all, but I am a beggar, deeply, deeply in need of grace, all the grace I can get. And so uh, we're excited to be participating in that. Uh, nursery is going well. We are almost up to two-thirds of our volunteers. At this point, we're the little train that could. Let's keep going. We need about 10 or 12 more volunteers, and I guarantee you, Tommy Evans, he is not going to stop. He is back there. He'll be back there after the service. If you haven't thought about it yet, we would love to have you sign up and be a part of uh, the nursery, and, and it is a ministry, the nursery ministry. Uh, Sunday school has been off and running. We have uh, one adult class. We have our youth class that Harold Parker's leading. Evie's leading the elementary students. We're excited about that. It's going great. And so if you hadn't thought about being a part of Sunday school, we invite you, 9.15 every Sunday morning. There's coffee down there. You can enjoy fellowship and good time in the Word, so we encourage that as well. There are several other uh, announcements that are in your bulletin. I would encourage you uh, to read that at your leisure. And so we're grateful Mary's going to lead us in the prelude. So let's prepare our hearts this morning for worship.
Mary, thank you so much for leading us in that. That song, Lord, I Need You, certainly expresses my heart this morning. And I pray for each one of us that we recognize how much we need the Lord, how unself-sufficient we are, how dependent on Him we are, and to think of His grace that He even called us into His presence to worship Him this morning. Our call to worship is from Psalm 145, verses 1 through 3. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you may open our hearts that we would extol your greatness and praise your holy name. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. May we join with the heavenly host, may we join with all creation in extolling your greatness, your greatness that is unsearchable. We ask now that you would join us. We invoke your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be in our midst as we praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us stand as we praise together of every blessing. sing that hymn, you're used to me uh, kind of repeating that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But think about also the line, Jesus sought me when a stranger. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know, you know how often, what do we want so often in life? We want to be seen, we want to be important, 
We want to be special. We want to be noticed. And sometimes I know here's one of the ways my heart is prone to wander. I kind of want to be noticed by people. And I forget that the God of the universe, the God who spoke and there was this wondrous creation, sought me when I was a stranger from the fold of God. We're going to confess our faith now, and as we do when we have communion Sundays, we use the Heidelberg Catechism as a guide. And I love it because in the answer to question number one, it tells us we're not our own. We belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So I will read the question, and then we will together as a people confess our faith with the answers to questions one and two. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and miseries are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and miseries. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Let us stand together and continue worshiping, singing Rock of Ages.
Let's keep that image before us as we go to the Lord in our time of prayer, that God is our refuge and strength, that we are to hide ourselves in him, that he's our glory, the lifter of our head. We will acknowledge together, recite together the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in our pastoral prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We come before you, Father, acknowledging that you are the sovereign God over all the universe, over all things visible and invisible, that you are the Lord and there is no other. You are greatly to be praised, and your greatness is indeed unsearchable. And even though you are transcendent, outside of creation, above all things, yet in the person of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, you come near. You are with us. You dwell within us. The Apostle Paul wrote that Christ in us is the very hope of glory. And so, Father, you are also a God who is not only transcendent but imminent, who hears our cries for grace and for mercy, who hears our prayers and rushes to us to give us aid when we need help. Thank you that you do sympathize with our weakness, that you are a great high priest. And so, Father, teach us to hallow your very name, to long for your kingdom, to be committed to your will, not our own, not what we want, but what you will on earth as it is in heaven, to be dependent upon you for our daily bread, not only physically, but spiritually, that we would be nourished by your word, by fellowship, by community, by the sacrament. That we would be a forgiving and gracious people. We pray for those of our number who are in need. We think of Carol Walker this morning. We thank you for her successful surgery. But as I have heard from Charlie this morning, and she was taken back to the ER, and she's being examined now, we want to pray for Carol and Charlie and ask that your peace and your power, and your presence would be with them. That they would know that you are an ever-present help in times of trouble. We pray for Carolyn Stryker and ask, Father, that you would be with her in her recovery from surgery. We thank you, Father, that you were with her, and we ask that you would continue to restore her fully to health. Lord, there are many others who need your ever-present help. Oh, we cling to your promises. And more than that, we are grateful that it's not up to us to hold on to you, but you hold on to us. Oh, how we need to learn and understand more and more your grace. We pray, lead us not into temptation, and especially the temptation to rely upon ourselves, to be self-righteous, to think that we can make it and do it ourselves. Lord, we do so desperately need you. Deliver us from the evil one who would have us to doubt your goodness. We ask, Father, that we would recognize and acknowledge that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price, and we now belong 
to your kingdom that is ruled by the power and glory of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We thank you that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, and we offer all praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
be seated. Would you join with me as we pray, as we approach God's Word this morning? Gracious and loving Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Word. Lord, we thank you that your Word is living and active, and we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would be our our teacher. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may see wondrous things written of you in your Word that the beauty of Christ would captivate our hearts, that we'd be gripped by the glory of the gospel, that the good news would be beyond good to us this morning, renewing our lives, transforming us as you touch us by the gospel of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have Bibles, we're going to read this morning. We are in now Romans chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at the first two verses of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And so, friends, I invite you now to hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given to us by the triune God of love because he loves us. June 25th, 1988, one of the best days of my life. It was a Saturday. I got up early. I could hardly sleep the night before. We had a party the night before with some friends, many of whom came in from out of town to celebrate with us. The weather that June day was absolutely gorgeous. I arrived at the church early. My job, I was told for months before, was just to show up. If you haven't guessed it by now or haven't figured it out by now, I'm talking about my wedding day. The day I married Evie, the service was absolutely perfect. Our favorite part of it, I think I can say our, Evie, you can correct me later. Our favorite part of it, singing together as a congregation, how great thou art. We raised the roof before that was a thing, raising the roof. I mean, it was thunderous to be able to sing together how great thou art. Now, what changed that day? I was still Jeff. Evie was still Evie. We still had many of our same behaviors. Believe me, 34 years later, I still have many of my same behaviors, feelings, actions, all of those things. But something fundamentally, something at gut level had definitely changed. We had gone from not being married to being married. There was an absolute fundamental change in our status. Everything reflected it. Our tax returns, I now checked a box that said joint. 
our address. It was no longer my address and her address. It was our address. The way we saw ourselves, the way our families saw us, the way our families treated us, our lives now needed to be progressively conformed to reflect that new reality. Can you guess where I'm going with this illustration? The status changed everything, and now we needed to progressively cultivate conforming our behavior, our feelings, our actions, our attitudes, our dispositions to that reality. But that reality was the reality. The status changed everything. And Paul says the same thing happens to us when someone becomes a Christian. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is not a better person. He is not a nicer person. He is a new creature. C.S. Lewis said it famously, God's not trying to make nice people. He's making new people. Everything has changed. We go from condemned to accepted, under judgment to under grace, from the reign of sin and death to the reign of grace, life, and righteousness. As we've been going through chapter 5, and I'm putting all of this in context, we've been saying that because of the first Adam, sin entered the world, death entered the world through sin, and sin and death spread everywhere. But because of Jesus Christ, the last Adam, through his life, death, and righteousness, through the one act of righteousness, eternal life, the reign of grace comes to his people. That's the subject of chapter 5. But that leads to a question, and that question serves and governs Paul as he moves now into Romans chapter 6, and especially as he develops his overall argument there. See, salvation and the reign of grace bring new life, and Paul is going to teach us here the nature of that new life. And in these opening verses, these first five verses, he does so from three perspectives. Basically, he's going to teach concerning new life what occurs, how it occurs, and why it occurs. See, I try to give you very short things in the outline, so if you're taking notes, I don't want to hurt anybody's hand. What occurs, how it occurs, and why it occurs. Okay? First of all, what occurs? Look with me at verses 1 and 2. And Paul asks the question, so he's kind of... And you have to remember, when a letter was read in these early churches, they didn't have chapter titles, okay? All of that wasn't in there. Those are things that have been added. That's not, you know, where it says chapter 5, chapter 6, that's not part of the inerrant, infallible word of God. That's added. You have to learn to read all of these things in context. And so chapter 5 just ended with this tremendous claim and tremendous promise where sin abounds... Grace abounds all the more. And of course, that leads to some obvious questions. The question is, well, what should we say then? Are we then to sin so that grace may abound? You know, I want to exalt the grace of God. I'm a good Christian. Let's exalt the, God, the grace of God. Let's go out and sin, right? And Paul, of course, answers that by no means. By no means. So he squelches that pretty quickly. But then look at the answer that he gives or the reason he gives. 
The reason he gives us, he doesn't give, how could you do that and displease God so much? God would be so disappointed in you. He doesn't say that. Doesn't throw out some sort of rebuke. Doesn't say, how dare you? He points to a fundamental reality. That reality is, how can we, who died to sin, still live in it? What occurs? You have died to sin. Now, we need to unpack that a little, don't we? First of all, let's put this question at the start of chapter 6 in context. One of my favorite commentators on the book of Romans is David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he says that chapter 5 is about Paul's primary object is to show the certainty and the finality of our salvation as the result of justification by faith only. In other words, renewing our hope in that salvation is assured. Paul is trying to remove doubts that are caused by these enemies of sin and death. The purpose of chapter 5 in Paul's overall flow is to give us assurance, to give us confidence, give us hope. Why? Because life is hard. Life is difficult. Even our enemies, sin, death, and even the law cannot stand against God's justification of his bride. The bride that God covenanted to give to his son. Talk about intimacy. And because of that, we have peace with God. We're introduced into a permanent position, a standing of grace. We have a perspective when trouble hits. God's love has been poured into our hearts. And as chapter 5 concludes, we're told that we, are, we enter into this reign of grace. So where sin abounds, where we sin, where we see sin all around us and within us, grace abounds all the more. And of course, so now chapter 6 flows right out of this promise, right out of this claim. It's the natural question that arises out of this promise. Will a grace-centered life, will a grace-centered message, a message that says you really are free, you really are accepted, you can't out-sin the grace of God, that's going to lead to cheap grace, easy believism. How do you answer that objection? Let me tell you how we don't answer that objection. We don't water down the gospel. We don't water down or reduce the message of grace. We don't pretend somehow or communicate somehow that grace isn't that you are forgiven as far as the east is from the west, that God remembers your sins no more. We never water down that message. See, if we water down that message, you know what we're governed by? We're governed by fear. We're governed by fear. And John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, he said, there's no fear in love. He said, perfect love casts out fear. See, we need to be honest with ourselves. We don't want to lose control. We're afraid. We're afraid of the, the gospel is a power. It is the power of God. The gospel is a force. And it scares us to death to get near it. So what do we do? We come up with rules and laws and principles and different things. See, we really don't understand the gospel as much as we think we do. We need to be radically biblical. Look at what the text says. 
Paul says, how can those who have died to sin still live in it? So what does it mean that we have died to sin? Well, the first thing we have to do is define carefully what Paul means by sin. Is sin only the actions we do? Whoop, I was driving down the road and I came to the stop sign and I didn't come to a full stop. I coasted through the stop sign. (gasps) I sinned. Is that what sin is? I broke the rule? My behavior, what? I was a little bit more in a bad mood when I came home from work than I should have been. I broke. Is that what sin is? No. That's not how, what Paul is saying about sin. See, sin is a power, a realm, a dominion, a tyranny. Thomas Schreiner in his commentator says, sin is a power from the old age introduced into the world through Adam. And John Calvin says it follows that as long as we are children of Adam and know more than men, we are so completely held in bondage to sin that we can do nothing but sin. We have to realize and think sin is a realm. It is a reign. It is a tyranny over us. Let me try to give you an analogy from sports. Surprise, surprise, right? Jeff's going to talk about sports this morning. It's like, this is what being a Christian is. It is being traded from one team to another. Let me pick on my favorite team, my beloved New York Yankees. You know they have a nickname? You know what the New York Yankees are called sometimes? The Evil Empire. They're the Evil Empire. Sometimes I wish they'd go back to being the Evil Empire. But think about it. See, that's a good way to think about it because what is an empire? It's ruled by an emperor and it's more of a dominion. It's a rule. And when we are converted, when we become a Christian, it's like going from one team, the team of sin, the team of evil, and being transferred or traded to another team, the team of life, the team of grace. And so Paul is saying, how can we who've been traded from one team to the, to the next, how can we, who have died to the realm of sin, and now we're, and he's going to elaborate on this, we're alive to the realm of grace, how can you live in the other realm? I'll give you another illustration, the illustration Tim Keller often gives with it. Tim Keller says it's like two pools, the pool of sin and the pool of grace. And so when we ask the question, how can we go on sinning so that, you know, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Tim Keller says, well, by no means. How can you who have died to this pool? You're not swimming in this pool. You don't belong. That pool is no longer your address. That pool is no longer where you belong. You've been transferred to this other pool. This pool is now your home. This pool is where now you flourish. You're more comfortable. The issue is this is what you belong to. So he says, does the message, this is a quote from Dr. Keller, he says, does the message of salvation by grace alone lead you to stay unchanged morally? He says, of course not, no. The gospel, though, gives you knowledge of your new status with regard to sin. That knowledge is you've died to it. You don't play for that team anymore. You don't swim in that pool anymore. But then he also goes on to say, there's some typical 
inadequate ways that we look at what it means that we no longer swim in that pool or we no longer play for that team. He says these are some wrong ways we have of thinking about that. He says, for instance, if you think you no longer want to sin, that's certainly not true. Biblically, all we have to do is jump ahead to Romans chapter 7, which is coming up. Paul's, oh, the very things I want to do, I don't do. That which I don't want to do, that's what I do. The things I hate, that's where I go. It's almost a way of saying, I've been traded from one team to another, but boy, I want to go wear the pinstripes again. I don't belong to that pool, but boy, does the water over there look good. That's because we're still in the flesh. Sin still influences us. See, think about it honestly. When was the last time you didn't want to sin? Or second, think about it if another inadequate way is to say that we've definitively renounced sin. Again, biblically, from this very letter, if we have definitively renounced sin, why would Paul in chapter 8 have to speak about the necessity of killing sin or of mortifying sin, to live by the Spirit and be a child of God. So what does it mean? Again, quoting Dr. Keller, it means the moment you become a Christian, you are no longer under the reign, the tyranny, the ruling power of sin. A good summary is what Paul said to the church at Colossae. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been transferred from one realm to another, and as a result, we have a new lord, new emperor, new master, new king. That's why the major instruction concerning our Christian life, what is known as our sanctification, our Christian life, is the teaching about idolatry not having other kings. That could be good things, but raising them to ultimate. So that's the first point. New life means that we've died to sin and we have a new king and master. Second, look with me at verses 3 and 4. How does this occur? And notice again what Paul is going. He's shooting at this information. He says, do you not know? Let me remind you. We need to be encouraged in the truth. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. How does it occur? The simple answer to that is new life occurs through union with Christ. We are incorporated into Jesus Christ. Listen to these words from John Calvin in his Institutes. He says, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separate from him, all that he has suffered and all that he has done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he has to become ours and he has to dwell within us. That's where, again, Paul said to the church at Colossae, Christ in you is the hope of glory. See, this is the point of the language that's used throughout the passage. Notice the use of the word with. We are buried, therefore, 
with him. We have been united with him in his death. We will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Everything is the language of with Jesus, not outside of Jesus. We have co-died with Jesus, been co-risen with Jesus. That's the point of the language of baptism. See, we may ask, why is he mentioning baptism? Is Paul talking about water baptism here? Well, let's notice a couple things here first. First of all, a historical reality. See, yes, Paul is speaking of burial, but burial back then in the world of the New Testament is not like our burial today. We have to be careful not to read our historical circumstances into the world of the Bible. See, burial back then was not under the earth, but in tombs or caves. Burial is mentioned here because it confirms and validates that death has really occurred. So Dr. Keller says, Paul is referring to the spiritual reality to which water baptism points. Remember, water baptism is a sign and a seal. The spiritual reality, here's the new life. You have really died and really been buried with Jesus. Your old life. See, I want you to think about what is it that you regret the most? What is it you feel the most guilty about? What is it that hinders you the most from really living free? Really living. I told you this story about my dad a couple of weeks ago when he would root us on playing basketball and shout from the stands, reckless abandon. What is it that hinders you? What is it that causes you? What is it that prevents you from living for Christ with utter reckless abandon? Do you realize the truth of this passage is you've died to that? You've been buried with Christ. A real burial, a real death. You have died to that. See, how does new life occur? Thomas Schreiner sums it up beautifully. He says, we died with Christ in baptism in that we are united with him in his once for all death. Because we are incorporated into Christ, his death becomes ours. Paul's argument then is that grace cannot possibly lead believers to sin more because by dying with Christ, the power of sin has been definitively broken. We don't need to give people more regulations and more laws and more rules and more principles. We need to remind ourselves and people of the power of the gospel that a definitive break has been made with the realm of sin. You are really free. And Paul's going to keep going on this theme as we go through chapter 6. So lastly, why does it occur? Look with me at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. And he says, In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Friends, I wish you could have been in Bill McCartney's adult Sunday school class a little while ago because he taught on this very theme. So if you were there, you're going to get it twice. And why? Because it's good for us. We need it. 
And if you weren't there, I'm telling you what you missed. Here is the key word, and the key word about union with Christ, it's the word solidarity. Do you recognize the solidarity, the oneness we share with Christ? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, solidarity, his death was our death. If we were still condemned or still guilty, God would cease to be God. That's why in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The justice of God is your friend. You can actually pray to God for justice, saying, God, remember your justice. Remember that you have punished sin. You've already expressed your wrath. Be just. Remember the fact that you punished Jesus in my place. If there was more punishment for you, God would cease to be God. He has solidarity with us. That means he has solidarity with us when we struggle. Solidarity with us in our weakness. That means what you feel, he feels. When you feel joy, he feels joy. When you feel pain, he feels pain. When you're troubled, he's troubled. When you're afflicted, he's afflicted. You know the story of the conversion of Paul in Acts chapter 9 always blows me away. Because, of course, here's, here's Paul. He was Saul at that time, right? And he's walking down the road, the Damascus Road. And what is he on the way to do? Have lunch with Christian believers? Is that, is that what he was? Hey, let me go take these good friends of mine out to lunch. No. He was, let me knock on doors and throw some of those who are following this, the way, in prison. Let me kill a few. Let me do all of this. And, of course, then this blinding light comes. And anybody remember what the resurrected Jesus said to, at that time, Saul? The resurrected Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? That is amazing. He didn't say, why did you persecute Stephen? Was Stephen just persecuted? Yeah, Stephen was just stoned to death. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? In other words, when Stephen was stoned to death, I was feeling those stones. When you're throwing those Christians in prison, you're persecuting me. Do you recognize practical application here? The way you treat other Christians is the way you treat Jesus. The way you treat other Christians. If you say a disparaging thing about other Christians, somebody for whom Jesus has died... You're saying that about Jesus because Jesus, that's the solidarity Jesus has with his people. That's the oneness, that's the union he has. So the end of verse 4 gives us the reason or the purpose, the why of all this. In order that means for this purpose, for this very reason, we participate in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that we might too walk in newness of life. That means that we may walk in the power of the resurrection. We live in resurrection power. The new life is grounded in Christ's resurrection. His resurrection is the sign 
that the new age, what in Greek is called the eschaton, the end of history, has come in the middle of history. And one of the former presidents of Westminster Seminary, where I went to school, Ed Clowney, put it this way. He says, let me define what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who lives in this present evil age, this present age that's defined by turmoil, disharmony, disunion, chaos, sin, evil. We live in this present evil age with the power, the resurrection power of the age to come. That's what we need to remember. We walk and live in a new way. Jesus says, I am making all things new. And the church, believers, is the sign of that. In other words, Paul is saying the the Messiah's resurrection, Jesus' resurrection means, and this is how one commentator put it, that those who are in the Messiah now stand and must walk on resurrection ground. Do we recognize what it means? See, I gave the story at the beginning, June 25th, 1988. Everything changed for me. Do you realize what it means to be a Christian? That this new status means that you are a new human being. That you possess new life. And maybe the best way I've ever heard it spoken, our present life, is that we are to live by faith what we already are in Christ. And in Christ, you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reality of what it means that we're a Christian. Thank you, Father, for it is such a radical thing, and it is something that we need to learn and understand more and more each day. Help us, Father, and even now as we come to the table to fellowship with you, to be fed by you, to experience more and more our union with you, we pray that we would cultivate this new life, that we might walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the congregation at Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, if you are a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and are a part of any evangelical church, you are invited to come to this, the Lord's table, the Lord's hospitality, the Lord inviting you to share his meal with you. He is wanting to give you grace. It is only if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you are outside of Christ in that way. First of all, my invitation to you would be, now might be the day of salvation for you. 
All you have to do, it, it could be as easy as a simple prayer, Father, accept me. Accept me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And you are immediately adopted into the family of God. You have immediately received new life. And today might be that day for you. So I want to offer that invitation. And for the family of God, I want you to recognize the body of the Lord that was broken for you. And that the body of the Lord is both Jesus' body, that he died on the cross, but we are also the body of the Lord. And so this is a time for us to kind of take a look at our relationships. Let go of bitterness. Let go of whatever it is that we might be holding on to. It's an opportunity for us to come together in communion and in community. I love the fact that in Christ, God takes away every barrier to union and communion. And he takes it upon himself. Oh, how I long in my own soul to be free. How I long to come unto Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and receive his rest. So friends, let's share that meal together. Let me pray and sanctify these elements to God for their holy use. Father, this is ordinary bread, ordinary grape juice, and we now want to take it unto your glory and ask that you would set apart these elements for their use. Lord, feed us. We began, Mary played the prelude. Lord, I need you. We're reminded in this sacrament, we're dead without you. And you have come to give us new life. We proclaim that now. Help us to be renewed in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. Thank you for such great love that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our hope is in you, Lord Jesus. You alone are our life, and we praise you. We thank you for this meal, for feeding on your body and your blood. Give us life and help us to walk in newness of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our service this morning, let us stand together and sing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed.
friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.